You are listening to Jewish Tech Meetup, a Jcast Network podcast. The Jewish Tech Meetup is made possible through a partnership between Makom Chadash, Open Source Judaism, Repair the World, and the Jcast Network. Today's episode is part one of the meetup that took place on Thursday, October 27th at Makom Chadash. The speaker was Dr. Leo Leibovitz. Leo Leibovitz is a visiting professor focusing primarily on video game and interactive media research and theory. In part one of this meetup, Leo discussed the connection between Judaism and gaming and explored the issues of cheating in video games. Welcome everybody to the New York City Jewish Tech Meetup. I'm Dan Saratsky, your humble host and narrator. Uh, this lovely space is provided to us by Makom Kadash, uh, which is a co-working space for Jewish startups. Um, we have a mailing list here and a signing sheet. Uh, you signing this helps Makom Kadash keep providing us with this space. So uh, please sign up so that we can you know, we're on the book. Um, so if you can you know, just pass it back and pass it to the next person. Um, so uh, the Jewish Tech Meetup is a monthly meetup of Jewish tech professionals or Jewish nonprofit professionals who work in tech. Tonight's guest speaker is Liel Leibovitz. Is that correct pronunciation? He is uh, a assistant professor at NYU, um, and he basically gets paid to play and study video games. Um, he is also uh, an author on Jewish subjects and has a very interesting take on the two together. And that's what he's going to speak to us about this evening. Um, all right, so I'm going to turn it over to Liel. Um, and again, welcome everybody. Well, thank you very much. Well, um, last time, last time uh, I was uh, in an event that Dan organized, there were about a thousand other people, and I've never felt closer to the sublime in my life. So I'll try to, I'll try to kind of. Uh, capture some of that spirit and essence. And I'd like to do so uh, by, or to begin doing so, by telling you a story about a man who knew absolutely nothing about video games. Uh, my great, uh, great, great grandfather, Rabbi Yosef Haim Zonifer, who was the uh, sort of an eminence in the uh, Orthodox Jewish community in Jerusalem in the early 1900s. Uh, the story, probably apocryphal, goes uh, like this. There was a young man, uh, who shall we say, was very far from being a pillar of the community. And this young man has lived the sort of life that will make no nice to boy proud. And he decides one day that it's time to start again. He needs to cleanse himself, he needs to clear his conscience, he needs to clean his soul. He wants to talk to some authority. There's no, you know, confession in Judaism. The people tell him, you know, go see the rabbi. The rabbi forgives, the rabbi knows, it's not. The person sort of walks over, he gets to this rabbi's office, and the rabbi's office, which I've actually seen, was sort of like very cavernous, you know, built out of Jerusalem stone type of, type of building, and kind of like covered with books. And he's waiting there for the great man to admit him, and the door opens, and, and the man, uh, some photos of, of whom I believe there are online, is this really, it's central casting rabbi 101. It's long, white beard, frail, and sort of paler. Um, and the young man 
sees the rabbi and says to himself, Holy, I'm, I'm going to sit in front of this holy person. I'm going to talk such filth. I can't tell what I can even bring myself to say these things. So he walks in and he says, Rabbi, I have this friend. And the rabbi says, yes, because that's how old rabbis be. Um, and the man says, well, you know, my friend, he's done some things that he shouldn't really be doing. Well, like what? Well, you know, maybe, maybe like stripping the neighbor's daughter, maybe that was part of it. Well, that's terrible, says the rabbi. And what else? Well, you know, maybe he took all of his son's, you know, bar mitzvah money and maybe kind of, uh, kind of a little bit gambled it away on all kinds of bad business. Well, that's awful. What else? Well, you know, maybe he also lied to his boss and said that some bad business move was actually made by his partner and not by himself. Maybe he got someone fired. And so on and so forth it goes. And the rabbi is just shaking his head and and at the end of the man's speech, the man looks up at the rabbi and says, what should I tell my friend? And the rabbi says, tell your friend he's an idiot. You? He says, yeah, he should have come here himself, and he should have told me it was you who did all these things. I tell you this, admittedly, not very funny joke, because I think in a very strange way, it captures uh, a lot of things that both video games and religion have in common. Both uh, put you in a situation of playing according to rules. You will never completely understand in a world created by someone of whose existence you can never entirely be sure and forces you to be yourself in an environment where self is a very fractured proposition. I am very well aware of how entirely confusing I sound right now. And therefore, I'd like to take it to the far uh, uh, less ethereal ground and actually talk about video games. More specifically, I'd like to start by talking about cheating, which is currently uh, an industry onto itself with, with you know, multi-million dollars in guides and, and you know, codes and etc. In uh, the early 19, or the late 1980s, Nintendo started putting out uh, programmers, uh, a player's guide. Uh, they were called, very prosaically, Nintendo Official Player Guide. And they would include the equivalent of what we now know as a walkthrough. It would just be, you know, well, here's what you do in Mario Level 1, here's what you do in Level 2, here's what this world looks like, etc., etc. There were four issues of this, one per year. Until 1992. In 1992, Nintendo put out the exact same thing with two major differences. The first, it contained cheat codes. Codes that you could enter and put into the system, and it would sort of thwart the whole course of the game. And the second change is that Nintendo no longer called this Nintendo's official player guide. Nintendo called this top secret codes. Because obviously everything that has come comes as official Nintendo merchandise is classified top secret. Why did Nintendo do this? Why would a game company put out a manual that contains codes that, at least theoretically speaking, subverts the very product it purports to put out? 
when we think uh, about games, and those of us who are you know, fortunate enough to play them their entire life and then fall into this great position where a major university tolerates this habit, uh, think about games a lot, we think primarily about rules. Right? A game, how do we define a game? Well, one easy way would be it's a set of rules according to which, to which we obey and according to which a certain progression of the game you know, progresses. But cheating seems to subvert that. And cheating seems to subvert that notion we have of a game as a magic circle. One of the most important game theorists, uh, a Dutch gentleman who I previously called Johan Huizinga, until uh, a Dutch friend informed me it was pronounced Huizinga, um, which I'm very proud to be able to pronounce correctly, uh, wrote this very influential book called Homo Ludens, uh, you know, Man the Player, in which he said, you know, games, uh, one great definition, it's a definition that game designers use you know, repeatedly uh, and rightfully so, is that a game is a magic circle. It's a place to which we can retreat. It has rules. Uh, we feel good. We know what's going to happen. We feel in control. And Hoysenha uh, says, games in this sense uh, precede culture because animals play. Games are more important. From games, a lot of other considerations flow. So why would we be destroying, quote unquote, this magic circle with cheating? And why would a company do that? Imagine the NFL putting out a guide to like, well, here's how you can fuck with our referees. No company would ever do that. Nintendo did. Why? The first understanding, and this is a key question, I think, to understanding a lot about why video games are A, so different, B, so successful, and C, so kind of like remarkably attuned, uh, although I, I'm sure without any purpose or, or you know, uh, intention, uh, so remarkably attuned with Jewish thought. One reason is because there is no such thing as cheating in video. Unless you're an electrical engineer and have a very good knowledge of how the system works, you cannot alter the course of any PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, or Nintendo Wii game. What you play is what has been uh, licensed and sanctioned and put in there by a designer. Now, why would a designer put something like that into the game? To answer this question, I think we have to understand what video games are. And here is the astonishing thing. Everything I say, by the way, is complete theory. Uh, this is a very basic field, and I do have some uh, empirical proof to what I'm about to say. And if you're interested in the methodology, I'll gladly share with you, but, but this is in terms of, you know, the big idea. It is customary to think about video games as an interactive medium. They are, I would argue, the least interactive medium. If you play tic-tac-toe, we all are familiar with the you know, rules of grid and access to fields. How many uh, variations would you say you could have based off of that very simple structure? The number is about a quarter of a million. How many variations could you have in the original Legend of Zelda? I would argue seriously the number is one. 
because it's code. And some of you, I assume, uh, are programmers or, or know a little bit about programming. Algorithms uh, are not porous, amorphous things. They're a series of if-then propositions. You are in a very closed environment. There is no chance in video games. No luck. Yes, you could slip with your with your you know with your toe and with your thumb rather, and although you could play videos with your toes, so I don't fancy do that sometimes. Um, you could slip with your thumb and you could miss the jump. And you know, Mario comes coming. Okay, yeah, you can do that. But every time you press the button, Mario's gonna jump in the exact same direction, in the exact same height, because Mario's not programmed to do many other things. Those of you who are fans like myself, unfortunately, of the New York Mets, know that you know in real life, situations like this don't usually occur. Because here you have a player who's supposed to hit a bat a certain way, and you know, he doesn't. And you know how that is. Not Mario. He does the same thing. The game does the same thing. Because it's an algorithm. So, so here's uh, theologically where we are. We are in an environment in which there is no luck, there's no chance. Uh, there are very distinct rules. You don't know these rules. And you somehow have to survive and make sense of it all. In other words, we're in America. America circa the 1600s. This is kind of how the Puritans saw the world. Uh, increased Mather for, Mather, for example, you know, one of the kind of chief uh, uh, Puritan uh, spiritualists and, and thinkers, uh, was so obsessed with trying to make sense of the world that he wrote this kind of amazing book that tried to compare, um, tried to compare uh, church attendance rates with uh, natural disasters like you know, uh, lightning strikes, etc., in various places, to prove that there was actually a correlation. If you say, well, here is God's plan, you could say, you could see cause and effect. Uh, in in um, a previous book that I had written called, with Todd Goodman, written the, called The Chosen Peoples, America, Israel, and the Ordeals of Divine Election, we have uh, this unbelievable segment of uh, a woman. Uh, in one of the colonies, I forget which one, coming, uh, coming kind of to, to the local leader and informing him that she had thrown her kid down the well to kill her child. You know, they're shocked. You know, why did you do such a terrible thing? And the woman says, now I'm done with not knowing. I know where I'm going. I'm going. The Puritans are not known for being fun. And yet video games essentially present us with the same sort of Puritan mentality work. Of course they do. They do something much more sophisticated. They present us with an idea of how to try and survive within this world we don't really know. And that idea in, in video game design language is called intention. What's intention? I played a game about five years ago. It was a World War II. Um, and one of the missions, uh, I forget the name of the game, but I remember this being a clear example of absolutely shitty things. So one of the missions were, was uh, involved going to a barn and killing uh, some Nazi uh, macho, for lack of a better word, uh, who hid it. Um, and you would walk down the path. And then I tried to go to the left. And there was an explosion. And the video game said, I'm sorry, you know, you stepped in a minefield. 
better left hand side. Okay, go back to the same start point. And you go, and after a while, I was like, oh, I wonder what's on the right. Explosion. Sorry, you stepped in a minefield. In other words, the only thing the video game let you do is walk straight, get to the bar, shoot the person down. This is terrible. This is work. And this reminds you, again and again and again, of the main kind of big, you know, uh, theological conundrum of games, of video games, which is you really don't have a lot of control over what's going on. All you can try and do is guess at some sort of plan that some sort of designer put out there. You must never feel like you're sober. You must always feel like you have a choice. Which brings us back to intention. Intention is a design mechanism of letting a player make mistakes. Oh, okay, I'm playing Legend of Zelda and there are like six doors here. Maybe it's that one on the right. No, it's not that one on the right. That, the middle one? It's not the middle one. What's in that little basket over there, in that little clay pot? I'm going to you know, smash it with my sword. Oh, there's some rubies here. I'm just going around the room. Oh, it's, it was a second door. I did this. Of course I did. Of course there was always only one solution only. But my feeling as a gamer is that this is what I need to do. I need to create my own I need to create my own way. Which brings me back to cheating. For the first uh, several decades uh, of, of video game history, developers fought this idea and fought it hard. Cheating codes were installed, but they were installed mainly for development purposes. The famous Konami code, which is, thank you, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, right, start, was installed there because as anyone who played Konami knows, uh, played Contra knows, uh, it is probably the most difficult video game in the history of video games, and if you're really, really good, and like myself, you know, if you had to spend the entire summer of 1987 at some, you know, rinky-dink arcade at Tel Aviv trying to get to the point, I got to level three, which I think is, like, really good. Uh, and imagine you're the developer of this. You need to play through the game, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to first become the world's greatest Contra player before you can actually fix some glitch in level 14. To which no human being ever would get there without the code. So the code was created. But the industry looked upon cheating as, as a cardinal sin, because it violated the magic circle. Uh, Amiga Power, which I think was probably one of the greatest magazines ever published, and a terrific game related magazine, had an entire, uh, uh, entire issue devoted to, uh, to cheating in the early 90s, and the issue was simply titled Scum. And leaving absolutely no room for any sort of subject. People who cheat are scum. So why did company, after all, to answer the question I started with, install cheats themselves and encourage you to use them? Because they realize that by doing so, you're creating a sort of identification, a sort of emotional identity, a sort of moral identity. In my dissertation, and this will be a bit of methodology, I interviewed uh, uh, several, you know, about several hundreds of players, and uh, each one of them said, "Oh, I know, I know that uh, the cheat that I'm 
using now is sanctioned. I know the designer put it there. Well, do you then do you then why call it cheating? Do you feel bad? Yeah, I feel bad. But hold on, but the designer put it there, so how could it be cheating? I don't know, it just it feels wrong to do it to people. But the designer wants you to do it. Yeah, I know it feels bad. It's sort of like the equivalent of that moment in every mafia movie in which the two main guys take, you know, the newbie, you know, to a field and tell them, if you want to become part of the family, you have to shoot this guy. You know, that act of murder makes you a part of the family because you have transgressed, because you have free will, and you chose to do something wrong, and now you're bound to this world. It's pretty much the same principle. And it's used, if you look at how cheating uh, is used, it's actually used as a design tool. It's used to help all kinds of players along at all kinds of sorts of, of spots around the clock. If you're, you know, a noob and you have no idea what you're doing, there's a cheat that will help you kind of go, you know, get along the way. If you're someone who's a very veteran player and you're getting kind of bored, there's a cheat that would help you, you know, like in Grand Theft Auto, make a tank fly and then you can fly out of the city and kill a bunch of people and feel very happy. It's a design principle. But it can't just be, hey, you're bored, click here, we'll give you this tank, no problem. It has to feel like a transcription. In the same way that everything about video has to feel as if it's not an algorithm. As if it's not pure, as if it weren't already uh, a foretold map. One of my favorite sentences uh, uh, in the lead comes from, I don't know where it comes from, was a court of Everything is pure, or anything is foretold, and permission is given. And in that respect, I think video games are a phenomenal, uh, uh, phenomenal success, not just because they're fun to play, although diamonds are so much fun, but also because they solve a deeper spiritual need. And their solution is so close to what, to what many of us, to what you know, much of Judaism has traditionally been about. It's about you. It's about you making your own way in a world that you don't completely understand. But this not understanding doesn't really you know, absolve you of anything. It still requires action, and it still involves morality. Which makes me think that maybe my great 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 grandfather wouldn't have needed uh, my choice of career quite so much. Uh, this would be an amazing point. I hope you've enjoyed part one of the Jewish Tech Meetup with Dr. Leibovitz. Part two of the meetup will be available in two weeks, in which Lael takes questions from the attendees and the conversation deepens. For information about how to attend the New York Jewish Tech Meetup live, please visit nyc.jewishtech.net and join the meetup. Also, please visit jcastnetwork.org to explore our many other shows of Jewish interest.